0: This is class number three, so we're going to be on the way of Cain uh, for the second time, and uh, uh, we'll get stuff passed out. There's, there's papers coming. They'll get to you. So here's our objectives today. Number one, we're going to look at the line of Cain. Number two, the way of Cain. And those are two different things. The line would be the bloodline itself. The way is the philosophy or the worldview or the way of thinking of Cain then we're going to look at evangelism, and we'll close by uh look at the truth, with a capital T. So we'll start up here with the line of Cain. Part of this will just be a brief review from last week in the book of Genesis. Now, the man, Adam, had relations with his wife, Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I've gotten a man child to the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so last week we talked about their offering, uh, Abe of the flock and the best. Cain just kind of gave of some of the produce of the ground, but really more of a look what I've accomplished type of a deal. And then Cain, in anger, killed his brother Abel. And who was directly cursed? So when you look at Adam when he sinned, the ground uh, the ground was cursed in that it's going to resist him. But when Cain sins, he himself is cursed directly by God. God says, now you, Cain, are under a curse. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth, dependent on other people. Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me.'" So the Lord said to Cain, "'Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold.'" And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, we don't know what that was, so that no one finding him would slay him. And Cain was saying, "'Whoever kills me.'" So, of course, there's Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Is there only four people? So, you've got to realize we'll see it later in Judges in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. They're not chronological. Genesis 4 and 5, it's not all chronological. Some things are filling in from before. In Genesis 5, Adam and Eve had multiple other sons and daughters. So, here's the growth formula. It's exponential population growth. Uh, and so, you're going to put the two exponents here are the population growth rate and the time. With two people, if there's two kids, you had a 100% growth rate, right? So when you start small, it's easy to have a high growth percentage rate. And this was from the World Economic Forum. I found this interesting, uh, looking at the growth rate. And notice, World Economic Forum, what's the problem, People. The problem is people. Uh, we know from Scripture that some people can catch well one-handed, and others can't. And we also know uh, from Scripture that sin is the problem, not people. The World Economic Forum says the problem is people. Therefore, what is the solution? Control and reduce the people. We've been. T- I'm going to nail you. Oh. He's been challenging me for weeks that I couldn't hit him. Um, so we have uh, people are the problem. Therefore, your solution is to control and reduce the people instead of sin. Now, this is interesting because they go back to a population of 4 million and 10,000 B.C. Have no idea how they would measure that. But pretty much everyone knows history from about 3,500 B.C. till now, about the Tower of Babel till now. And look what they put in here. They tell you the percentage growth, or the average growth rate on almost of this graph from 10,000 BCE, that's before common era, so they're trying to remove Christ from everything, from BCE till 1700 was simply 0.4% growth rate. That is an abysmally small growth rate. Why do they do that? Any, Because growth rate is exponential. The world population is one of the simplest big picture rebukes against evolution in billions of years. If man has been on this earth for a million years, or whatever you're going to call man from the apes, you should have this massive population after a million years. So they just invent a very low population, The biggest things we can do medically, its not the biggest ones are going to be sanitation, GI illness reduction. That's going to be huge, and reduction in childbirth deaths, but it's exponential. Once it starts going, it really goes up. That is an exponential graph. There's no way man has been on this planet for over a million years because the population simply argues against that. But by 130 years, Adam was 130 when they had Seth, the replacement for Abel. So this murder would have happened somewhere around 125 to 130. At a small growth rate, realizing you're starting from a small population, easy to have a large percentage growth rate, at 8%, you got 45 to 50,000. 10%, you have 500,000 on the earth. So Cain has legitimate reason to be fearful for his life. So they're saying from here to there, this manufactured super small growth rate, because if they have any kind of reasonable growth rate, it proves there's not been that long to have that much population. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He went out. He did not want to commune with God. He settled. God said, you'll be a wanderer. He is now in defiance against God, raising his fist up against God. Jude. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. Woe to them. They have gone the way of Cain. So you don't need to belong to the bloodline of Cain to follow the way of Cain, rejecting authority. Authority from God. But it's really, it's this fist symbolizes rejection. I reject the truth. That's the way of Cain. Number one, The way of Cain is to reject authority and the truth. To reject authority and the truth. And we know the truth must be internally consistent and consistent with reality. So you see the way of Cain. Super easy to see this in our world today. Look at government policies and thinking and the way anything is discussed. There is no internal consistency and there's no desire to be internally consistent. They don't care if they're not internally consistent. And they also will reject all sorts of reality because their worldview simply is not true. I just showed you a great example of that with the world population curve. The World Economic Forum rejecting internal consistency with growth rates and reality. Look at what's happened in the 20th century. All the Marxist deaths of millions and millions of people. Look at a million people here in this country from abortion. These massive things to hit the growth rates, and world population is still growing. And it's going to do it in different pockets at different rates, but we're talking the world population. So this way of Cain, Canius in the Greek, he would have a K. We're going to see how Greek mythology actually picks this up a little bit too. We're not going to dwell on Greek myth, but it's interesting how it dovetails. Telling the history of the world from the fallen perspective of Cain. Rather than us that take it from the line of Seth. Genesis 4 Cain had relations with his wife, would have been a sister, and he, she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of his city Enoch after the name of his son. So, what was the first city, therefore, first government done? The way of Cain. In rejection, we will not wander. And I'm not going to be dependent on people because the ground won't produce for me. I will create a city and a government. I will be over them. They're not going to give to me out of the goodness of their heart. They will give to me type system because I'm going to be in charge. God did not devise government. Man did in rebellion against God. You see it here? The first city and first government? Cain. After the flood? Nimrod. God ordained a patriarchal system. Man rebelled against that. So God is in charge of all the kingdoms, but they were in defiance of God. God did not set those up. Now to Enoch was born Irad. What's that name mean? Of the city. So you have culture and population growing. He's a man of the town, a man of the city, business, commerce in the city. Lamech. So this is from the line of Cain to Enoch. There's an Enoch on the good side too. Uh, And Lamech took for himself two wives. Anything different from how God ordained is sin. What did God say? One man, one woman. Not any other combination. That is not only what God ordained and did, but that is the image of God. So what Satan is doing is attacking on multiple fronts, including the image of God, any way he can get anything other than one man and one woman. So Lamech, the first one with two wives. Notice they're wives. It's not just sexual partner. So they still had a legal transaction going on with marriage before the flood. The name of one was Ada. Beautiful, pretty, ornament. Ornamented to be beautiful. Do you think he's looking on the inside or the outside? How about Zillah. Sweet-voiced. Probably musical. Kind of makes you wonder how we look at beauty in our culture, doesn't it? Are we looking as man does? Or do we look at the external? The way of Cain. Genesis 4. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who uh, who play the lyre and pipe. So you have animal husbandry, and you have music flourishing becoming well-developed, how many millions of years of evolution did this take? That's a myth, right? It happens very fast. As for Zilla, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain, named after Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. What is a forge? You don't just dig bronze out of the earth. That is high technology to forge it And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. We don't have enough time to go into her, but that's a fascinating concept. Lamech said to his plural wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. Hebrew poetry is not like roses are red, violets are blue, something like that with rhyming. It'll be parallelism, and your text will put it set off like this. So Adam gives the first poem. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You notice that's literally true? Some people will try to say they find poetry in the Old Testament. Genesis 1 is in vow consecutive. It is not poetry. But there is poetry there, such as Adam's poem. But you notice it is still literally true? God's curses are in poetic form. But you notice they are literally true? Ladies, does it hurt to give birth? It's literally true. So just because you can poetry does not mean it's not true. So he has high culture. He's giving a poem. I've killed a man for wounding me. That word there is not even that big. It's more of a scratch. It wasn't a big blow. And I killed him for it. And a boy, a yelad, for striking me. Well, what's a boy? What's a yelad in the Hebrew? That can be a little boy. It can also be a mighty warrior. A youth in the prime of his youth David fits into that category. He was not a little boy when he killed Goliath. He was already a mighty warrior by the time that happened, probably 18 to 21. Alexander the Great, 16, when he won his first battle under his father. And then he is a very young man, a lad, as he becomes world conqueror. Some things maybe you don't shave yet or don't have kids yet. uh, But there's multiple things, but it is not simply a little boy. Mike Tyson, he weighed 190 pounds at age 12. They couldn't find guys to spar with him that were kids, so they hired full-grown men to go in the ring, and he knocked several of them out. At 12 years old, 190 pounds. A Yaled, a youth in the prime of his life. Here he is at age 20. So what is Lamech saying in his poem? The Hebrews called it the Song of the Sword. This poem is a man lightly assaulted me, and I killed him for it. A young warrior in the prime of his life, I killed him. I am the big dog is what Lamech is saying. I take care of everything. There's no need for God. And here's how he finishes his poem. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 77. Who is going to avenge Cain? God. Where is God mentioned here? He is removed. Who would avenge Lamech? I will do it myself. There is no need for God. Number two, Lamech embodies the hardcore rejection of God by the line of Cain. Pride. Self-sufficient. Here's Tubal-Cain. This is Greek myth. Uh, and so Greek myth is not Scripture, but it's interesting what it'll talk about. So this is Tubal-Cain in Scripture. Hephaestus, the god of the forge, the oldest son of of Adam and Eve, of Zeus and Hera, their oldest son, who they loved and they call immortal. He has a beard. So this vase is now after the flood, so he's an ancient one. He's from the ancient times. Of course, it's the first son. From him, we get the word techni or technology, the god of the forge. Tubalcane, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. They're telling you the same story, just Greek myth is worshiping the fallen humanism. The forger. Here's Genesis 4, put up in big so we can see it. Who is being rejected by the line of Cain? God. You notice how he is prominent. Nice. He's prominent. And here's the era of the line, the bloodline of Cain. Where do you see God? Yahweh or Elohim? He is absent. He has been removed. And that's how you start to know in Greek myth, Acts 17, the Uh, With Ares, the altar to the unknown God, we have unknown and removed him. They used to know who he was. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech doesn't even need God. He will avenge himself. Much magnified over that. So Genesis 6, right before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So our first week, we delved into this with the very formation at the formative level in our heart, in our mind, where we even start to form thoughts is only evil. We are depraved. The Lord was sorry he had made man in the earth. He was grieved in his heart. So he's going to have Noah build an ark. There's going to be judgment. It's interesting, Mike and I haven't coordinated anything, but he talked a little bit about this. How about water to flood the earth? And yes, it's the fountains of the great deep. There's the ring of fire. This is the mid-Atlantic ridge here, but it goes throughout the whole earth 40,000 miles continuous. Those are subterranean volcanoes. book of Genesis tells us they all blew up on the same day. That's going to be massive, catastrophic change. Now, after the flood, if you flattened the earth, you'd have enough water to fill it by two miles. Before the flood, most of that was under, and rain was not the primary source. The fountains of the great deep was the primary source. Number three, the worldwide flood of Noah killed sinful man and catastrophically altered the entire earth. Here we have Greek myth again. Cain being pounded by the three sons of Noah, represented by the centurion 100 years prior to the flood, is roughly what that is. And the branch signifies them with the line of Seth. So they pound Cain into the ground at the flood. Multiple depictions of this. Notice the centur has broken past the shield. He's inside the shield now. It's not going to help the way of Cain. Cain on the bottom at all. And they pound him. Multiple depictions of this. This is humanism. Notice they pound him on the head thinking, oh yeah, you're going to crush the head of the serpent, but we will rebuild, we will come back. That's the whole point. Western civilization is based on the Greeks. We have to understand the humanism that they are, but they're actually telling us the real history, but they're just telling it from their side. So we're not going to delve into Greek myth. But It's fascinating for me to look at it. So now we're at the way of Cain. We'll look at this again. Caneus, E-U-S in the Greek, the way of Cain. They spell him with a K in the Greek. That's who that, who, is there any mystery who's getting pounded into the earth? It's the way of Cain, the judgment of God. That's the flood. But the Parthenon, there's freeze plates and then there's the metopes on the top. These things tell a story of the transfer. Of course, this is still standing, so this is after the flood. What their whole system is about is the transfer of authority, the way of Cain being reborn and transferring from Noah, the old man of the sea, to Zeus, the serpent king. That is what Greek mythology is about, and you can see the first murder in some of the metopes. Here you have the birth of Hephaestus. So you had Cain, Tubal-Cain, in the old uh, in, in Genesis. They will call him Hephaestus, the god of the forge. Why is he shining? Even on ancient stuff, you can still see they try to make him shining. He is called the light of Zeus, the moment of lightening up. Doesn't Satan tell you I will enlighten you? But it's all a lie. See, it's told from the flip side. We know history from the side of Seth. They're telling it from the side of Cain. Hephaestus, Cain, rejected God and embraces the serpent. And he is called the princely lord of light. So here you see Hephaestus, he is the god of the forge with tools. He's walking away. He's done. He's old, but it's his way being reborn. Here's Zeus. There's Athena born from the head, the idea of Zeus. It's his idea. The serpent king, we will reborn. And Athena is Athena Parthenos, ever virgin. She will never conceive. There will not be a seed of the woman. There will not be a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. She will remain virgin. Here you see again, Hephaestus walking the other way. He's from the old world before the flood. Here you see Zeus and Athena. Another bright light sun. Erechthonios, the seed of Hephaestus. So here you see Hephaestus. Cain, the way of Cain, he is pounded into the ground with the flood, but his seed comes back from Gaia, the earth, and Erechthonios is delivered, the bright shining star, and Athena herself is working the delivery, and you notice her weapons are in the hands of who? Nike, victory. She doesn't need her weapons now because the way of Cain is reborn, and victory, Nike is holding her weapons. Four. Four. The way of Cain had to be reborn after the flood. So now we're going to go back to Scripture. That's where the real truth is. God blessed Noah, this is at the end of the flood, and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Spread out, fill the earth. No, we will not. So when would this happen? This would be about a hundred years after the flood. Tower of Babel. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach. So that's added in. The italics in New American Standard are added in. They're not trying to make a tall tower. It will be into heaven. The top of it represents heaven. So it's not simply a tall tower. It's to reach into the heavens and see. Why? Let us make ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered. God said, spread out. They said, No. We will not, we'll make a tower and a name for ourselves and another government here, just like Cain did with the city of Enoch before the flood. Lest we be scattered. That's the way of Cain. Direct defiance, knowing what God says and celebrating the rejection of Yahweh. So God said, you will be scattered. They said, no, we won't. We will build a tower. He said, you will be scattered. So he does it with language. Imagine how frustrating it would be to be in charge of the building project, and now you've got a language problem. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city, and that was at Babel. So now, post-flood, we have Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem. uh, Shem is the godly line. Ham has problems right off the bat that we're not going to deal with. But who comes from the line of Ham? Mizraim. Where does Mizraim go? What, what major nation? Close to China, uh, but it's Egypt. Uh, so Mizraim is Egypt from the land of Ham I called my son. Christ went into Egypt. And Canaan also comes from this. We know the problem. I'm just highlighting ones that deal with Israel here. We have Egypt and Canaan, both from the line of Ham. Cush became the father of Nimrod. He's from the line of Ham. And Nimrod is going to be a man about 100 years after the flood at Babel. He became a mighty hunter on the earth. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And he built Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, so you have Egypt, you have Assyria, you have Babel. Babylon wasn't a world power yet, but the Tower of Babel was there. That was the start of his kingdom. Number five, Nimrod became the first dictator after the flood. When God changes language, who's going to stay in the best spot? Nimrod right? So if you don't leave, you will be enslaved. God is forcing the mass exit from everybody away from Babel. Mizraim, Egypt, let's look at this from the line of Ham. So Cain uh, from, from the line of Ham, you had the Cainites, you had Mizraim, Egypt, you had Babel. From here, you have the Philistines as well from the line of Ham. So Ham brings in all sorts of negatives, Canaan, from the line of Ham, becomes the father of Sidon. What people group was Tyre and Sidon? The Phoenicians. Yes, a world power undefeated in battle until the time of Alexander the Great uh, in, with their entire city. So Tyre and Sidon, and this, the Phoenicians, are instrumental in bringing in the cross, as well as idolatry into Israel, um, With Baal worship. Babel. From there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Babel was not just this big, massive tower. Even at the time of Alexander the Great, that would be 300 BC, 330 or so, he went through a huge project hiring 10,000 people to clear out the debris. He wanted to rebuild it, but he died young and didn't get it done. These are ziggurats. Remember, it's not a tall tower that will reach into heaven. Read it literally. At the top of it will be into heaven, representing heaven. What are they doing? Did you realize every continent on earth has towers, ziggurats, and pyramids, including North America? Most of them are covered. They're ancient. They all were built at about the same time, at about 3500 B.C., and then they all stopped being built. Wow! Wow! Evolution cannot explain that, but the Tower of Babel can. They dispersed out, they kept doing what they were doing, but they realized now we don't have the critical mass. It's too expensive, and the best ones are always made earliest. That's fascinating what early man did. Over ten times in Scripture, God says this, "...beware, do not lift up your eyes to heaven to see the sun, the moon, the stars, the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship and serve them." Whether you're serving the serpent, Zeus... Humanism, ancestor worship, or the sun, moon, and stars? What are you worshiping? Part of creation, not the creator in Romans. And so that's the big thing. Are we worshiping something other than God or God? The way of Cain rejects God and worships something other. They're rejecting authority. So Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil. Is this a literal bloodline? Even if you take the angelic view, which would be the accurate view for getting the giants and the Nephilim, what's the consequence of the angels that cohabit with women? They go to Tartarus. Tartarus has everlasting chains. It's a part of Hades. It will be thrown to the Lake of the Abyss, but you never come out. Everlasting chains. You can come out of the abyss, and you can come out of Hades. You can't come out of Tartarus. If you'll read people that will talk about Satan sleeping with Eve or some sexual thing like that, other angelic beings could do that, but Satan would not. He would have ended up where? In Tartarus. If you're in Tartarus, you never get out, and he's been out the whole time. So no, that's not a literal bloodline. This is the way of Cain, is what Jesus is saying. You guys are following the way of Cain. So now we're going to ask the question. Can the way of Cain exist in the holy bloodline of either Seth or Shem? You are right. You're gonna. T- You're sitting up here to just get all my candy. He's always talking about getting candy. Now he's up here. Number six. It is possible for the way of Cain to infiltrate the godly line of Seth and Shem. True. Yes, because it does. So I'm going to show you several aspects of this. And we can talk about this one if there's time later, but it's interesting, the age. And I mentioned he was, that Isaac would have been at least a teenager or so. And uh, someone brought up some information. When you really study that, he'd be in his 30s. Perhaps, he wouldn't be at over 40, but probably in his late 30s, carrying all the wood. Makes you realize this kind of story is a little different than we might have thought. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Remember God said, you'll have children? They're getting old. This Abraham's not old enough. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Go into. That's a euphemism for intercourse. Perhaps I'll obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of, See, I'll take the young chick. We'll solve it this way. Not following patiently the promise of God. And that leads to what people group? The Ishmaelites. There we go. Uh, and so that's uh, from Ishmael, and then that would be the Muslims. Uh, and Do you think there's issues with God's line with Israel and those not of the seed, which would be the Muslims? Yes, there's a significant issue. Here we go to the... New Testament, Revelation. There's two marks in Revelation. There's the mark of the beast, and there's the mark of God. Who gets the mark of God? There's a select group of 144,000, and they're all of the tribes of Israel. How many? There's 144,000, 12 from every tribe of Israel. And here's it goes on and talks about it. Have you ever looked at that and come up with questions? I have, and it's interesting. Joseph, why is he listed there? He's one of the 12. Remember, he went to Egypt. He's one of the 12 sons. But he had his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, that were born when he was in Egypt. And when Jacob, Israel, is blessing them, he switches his hands and he blesses the younger, but he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh. So, what are the 12 tribes that hold property in Israel? Joseph is not one that does, his two sons do. But wait a minute 12 sons, Joseph gets two, that means 13. What about the Levites? Mike talked about this today. The Levites did not have territory. They're scattered around. So that's why there's 12 tribes with territory. The Levites have no territory. But Ephraim and Manasseh... And you'll read it sometimes... The half-tribe of Ephraim... Or the half-tribe of Manasseh. That means they got the double portion... But they each have a legit inheritance. That's 12 plus Levi 13. There's Manasseh named here. Wait. There's Levi. So when you talk about the 12 tribes... Levi is not usually one of them. Here in Revelation... You have Levi getting one and Joseph getting one. So, you have Ephraim and Manasseh without Levi makes 12. Joseph comes in. Well, who is he sitting in for? His son. Who said that? His son, Ephraim. So, Ephraim still has an inheritance through Joseph, but he's not mentioned here. Who else is missing? Dan. And this is right. Mike's sermon today talked about this. Pretty interesting. These two tribes. We're going to go back and see the formation of this. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob, the other name for Jacob is Israel, no children, she became jealous of her sister and said, give me children or I die. Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here's my maid Bilhah, just like two generations back, uh, Sarai did with Abraham. Come take the young lady, because I'm infertile. Sleep with her. Have a kid. It'll be mine. That was Dan. The way of Cain, not following God, one man, one woman, taking in some form of an extra sexual partner, thinking we will solve this promise that God obviously can't solve, because we're getting too old, and I'm infertile, just like it happened with the uh, Muslims coming from Ishmael. Now here you have Dan. So Dan was the first one born from an extramarital issue here, man trying to solve it. That's the way of Cain, solving the promise of God. That's the origin of Dan. What did Dan and Ephraim do? That was Mike's sermon today. You notice it was in the hill country of Ephraim where the priest was and who went up there? Dan. To really understand that, the book of Judges is not chronological. Just like Daniel, you have to look at the kings to know which chapters go where. The book of Judges is not exactly chronological. The end stuff like 17 and 18 actually happened early, and you know that by the names of some of the places. Dan and Judah had an inheritance down at the bottom, on the south, right by who? The Philistines and what were their dudes in their army? The Nephilim. Dan did not like that. The book of Judges, chapter 2, read it when you go home today. It's all about the angel of the Lord criticizing Israel for not taking their inheritance. Dan is belly aching because no inheritance has fallen on me, passive. God wants active attainment. You're put here, Dan was a warlike tribe, so was Judah, to fight the Nephilim. They left and went as far north as they could. That's what Dan did. They took the priest along the way. Ephraim is where the priest was from. Dan said, screw it, we're not doing what God's asking. That's a fight and those are big dudes. We're leaving them as far north as they could. And together they introduced idolatry and they don't show up in Revelation. Pretty interesting to put that together. King Saul, he belongs to the proper line of Israel. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So Saul, Samuel is saying, I'm the prophet. Listen to me, I'm telling you a mission. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. That's going way back several hundred years later to the days of Moses. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's side. That's where Amalek comes from. From Esau. What did Amalek do? Esau always had issues with Jacob. Jacob. Now you go back to her, Moses. Hands are up, Israel's winning. Hands go down, they don't. You remember the battle. That's the Amalekites. They snuck in behind Israel to try to take the weak part of them. They have a battle. Joshua's down fighting. Aaron, Moses, and her up above. They put rocks up and hold Moses. Because what happens up here dictates there. When his hands come down, what happens? They start losing on the battlefield. Goes up, they start winning. Greek mythology talks about that stuff all the time. That is, uh, the Battle of Troy when you start studying it. Same principle, it just flipped on the dark side. So here we are in Exodus. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword because the hands were up because they used stones to keep them up there. The Lord said to Moses, write this in a book. God is not a God of oral tradition. You start writing with Adam and he tells you that in Genesis 5. Write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua that God... I will. What will God do? I will utterly destroy the memory of Amalek from under heaven. They will be exterminated. Not now, just like the sins of the Amorites have not come to their full measure. It's not time to exterminate Amalek now, but it will happen. Write it down because I will call that card to be played later. And that's what happens now. Samuel is pointing this out to Saul, the king. It is now time to play the card that God wrote back to Moses. Go and strike Amalek. See the same word? Utterly. That's not partially or literally. It's utterly. Destroy all that he has. Look at this. Do not spare him, but put to death man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, everything. Utterly. Destroy. Samuel is now applying what God told Moses now to King Saul. This is time to not spare. So did God seriously order genocide? You're darn right. God is always sovereign. He always dictates when and where your life is forfeit. Think of how we think of morality. God is sovereign. Remember the temptation. Satan comes down to the serpent. Ye shall be his gods. But fundamentally in class one we talked about this. The real essence of the temptation is to desire something that is not true. You, Eve, should desire that you are a morally autonomous being, that you can determine what is right and what is wrong, and you don't need to be told that by God. We might think genocide is wrong. The answer is, it depends. Was it ordained by God or not? And that's when you see God using things all through Scripture to have His sovereign punishment on various people. He sells Egypt into Babylon as payment for Babylon taking Tyre God is sovereign over nations and when people die so Saul has a partial victory he doesn't utterly destroy Amalek what does he do? he sets up a monument for God nope himself uh, uh, Saul doesn't fulfill what God told him to do and then he celebrates his victory with a monument to himself remember Saul was a big dude one of his jobs was to fight the Nephilim which he never did Saul and the people spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best. He spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, the families the lamb. He took all the best who was not willing to destroy them utterly, but all the despised and worthless stuff he destroyed. Samuel said, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight to them until they are exterminated. Fulfill what God promised would happen back to Moses. And Saul said, screw that. I'm going to keep the best. And Samuel says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And it's the way of Cain. Saul knew exactly what it was. He knew what he was commanded to do, and he did not do it. As a result, he loses the kingdom. Seven, by not performing genocide as commanded by God through Samuel, Saul lost the kingdom. And this goes on even in the book of Esther. You see God is sovereign, but look at the lines. Because he allowed some of the people to escape, Samuel hacked Agag, the king, to pieces, but he has a descendant. After these events, King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the what? Of the line of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Because Saul didn't kill him, that's Haman, and then he wants to kill all of Israel here at the time with Xerxes in the book of Esther. You see how the bloodline keeps going. You have Esau, you have Ham, you have Jacob, which is Israel, and all these factors from bloodlines trying to wipe out the holy line. So now we'll look at evangelism. Adam had relations with his wife, and now they get Seth, who is appointed, that's what his name means, to Seth. A son was born, and he called him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So look at Eve, Elohim, has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel. There's sorrow, there's death, and he is now distant God. He's not Yahweh, he's distant Elohim. Yes, he's still there, but I feel a distance and a separation because Cain killed my boy. But then, Seth comes, and at the end of Seth, men call on on Yahweh again. It gets renewed from the line of Seth. Number eight, the line of Seth helped lead men to call on the name of the Lord. And that's now Yahweh, not the distant Elohim. So think of being an evangelist. Here's Billy Graham. Look at the crowds that he got. We're going to look at Band of Brothers, a brief clip, as they clean out one of the concentration camps. So imagine being there at that time. Here's Auschwitz. Uh, My son got to go on a trip through these things, and, and several years ago, about 15 years ago, uh some of you old timers might remember Don McLean. Uh he used to attend this church. He died a few uh, several years ago. He was in his nineties. He was one of those guys he'd always wear his World War II hat, Army, United States Army. He wore it all the time. We had a class uh over in the in the gym and we were talking about this exact issue of uh people coming out of or going into the concentration camps. And it was fascinating to watch a group of people. Well, you know, we took a trip there here a couple years ago and saw this, and a bunch of people are talking. Here was something. Here was that. Having their own two cents. And I was sitting in the back, watching, and it still impacts me to this day. Don McLean, cane in one hand, and he was tremulous. Put his hand on a chair, and it took him about a minute to stand up. And he was visibly shaking. And he takes his hand, and all it, it, it takes a minute for the hush to spread across the room, because if he's behind you, you don't realize it, and you're given your own two cents that are pretty worthless about that. And he's shaking his hand, and I remember he just, he could hardly even speak, his whole body is tremulous. He said, I was there, and he collapsed in his seat. The old man. I was there watching him say that. That had a huge impact on me. What do you think happened to the group? How many smart people that took a tour of Auschwitz were left? Nobody. Nobody has anything to say. The old man said, I was there, and he collapsed. He couldn't even speak. Why are we thinking we're so smart? So think about the power of those words. I was there. Think of Adam and Eve, the two most powerful evangelists on earth. I was there. We communed with God in an unfallen state. Nobody has ever experienced that except Jesus Christ. We understood walking and talking with Yahweh in intimacy without a corrupted heart. Nine, it is a powerful testimony to be able to say, I was there. Jesus says the same thing. I am different than Lucifer. Lucifer doesn't know his origin. I have no origin. I always been. My testimony is always true cuz I am. I was there. Cain and Abel, we saw God himself comes in and he intervenes with Cain. Talk about an evangelist. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain if you do what is right, I will supernaturally come in. And Cain says, no. God says, but you must master it, Cain, in defiance. No. I know who you are. I don't want it. Blatant rejection. Number ten, true or false, it is easy to excuse Cain because he was simply naive and didn't really understand what was going on. False. He knew exactly what it was. So, in the interest of time, what we're going to do is we'll pick this segment up. It's a, a brief little thing uh, as we close, but we'll do that next week um, because what we've got to do is kind of move and clear out for the next sermon. Uh, but what we did today is looked at the line of Cain, so the genetic line going through Lamech, really, I would say, is the pinnacle of defiance against God, the pride of man. You know, Mike has been talking about pride and here's Lamech, the guy. I not only killed another man for a wound to me, but even a prime youth in the peak of his physical condition, I killed him because he's offensive to me. I lay down the law. I will take two wives. I will do as I see fit. I don't follow God. And then you look at evangelism, despite Cain and, uh, despite Adam and Eve and even God himself, Cain still willfully rejects the way of Yahweh. So why don't we pray so we can uh, clear out of here. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you for this day. Uh, help us to uh, study your word and want to be disciples of you who are disciplined because we follow you and we stay under your authority and we don't want to usurp it for ourselves. I thank you for Mike and his sermon today. I pray that we will uh, not try to put you in a box, but realize you are the infinite one and that we need to bow before you. In Jesus' name, amen.